0: like to have that passage open in front of you and in particular verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2 and uh, we know don't we that in the New Testament we read often of how there is a great cost in following the Lord Jesus and uh, there is a cost also in the fact that God should send his own son to be the saviour of sinners like us and the Lord Jesus said himself and he emphasized that we are to count that cost if we are to be those who truly follow him. He said in Matthew 10, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He said it again in Matthew sixteen twenty four. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me but whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And these and so many other texts in the Scriptures in the New Testament make it clear that we should count the cost to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Lord works in a person's life, when they are made alive to the gospel, as they're given those gifts of repentance and faith, as we considered this morning, they understand that to trust Jesus To follow Christ, there are those costs, there are those sacrifices, but it is infinitely worth it. That he is worth it. And so they are willing to lay aside those things to follow him. Because they see him as the, the treasure, the savior. To him he is exceeding precious. And certain things that maybe they did before, they turn away from and refuse to have anything to do with. There is a turning away from the world and a turning to the Lord Jesus. And so there is a, a cost to be counted in following the Lord. But here in our text, Peter is emphasizing the great benefits and the joys of following Jesus, the incredible riches that we are given in the Lord and which are amazing gifts of his grace. And the great spiritual riches that are the treasured possession of all believers, of all believers. The spiritual privileges that are given to us because we are one with Christ. And we see that throughout the New Testament, this consistent theme. So Romans 9, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, Endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. God wanting to pour out great riches on those who are the vessels of mercy, the riches of his glory, immense spiritual privileges. Or Romans 11. After speaking of riches for those across the nations in Christ, the writer Paul says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, oh, the depth of the riches, the undiminished resources, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. These things which are ours in Christ. Or you think of that amazing letter to the Ephesians where Paul speaks of this again and again. Ephesians 1, the riches of his grace which he made to abound toward us. In Christ we are made spiritually rich. Ephesians 2, 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is our privilege, Ephesians 3, to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, the riches of his glory. And we have been enabled to believe the gospel preached, have received these things, there are us in him. And you know, if that's our condition this night, then surely we should be filled with joy and with thanksgiving. Romans 2:4, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering? Dear friends, how we must think greatly and deeply and widely about the riches of his kindness that have been granted to us, how we should be thankful. You know, these spiritual privileges, as we have seen in verse 4, they come to us in Christ alone. And by God's grace, we were brought to Christ. We came to Christ for salvation. Every blessing comes to us through him. And Peter has been identifying these privileges, and we've seen a number of them over recent weeks. So we've looked at our union with Christ, that the life of Christ is in the believer. We are united to him. We've looked at access to the Lord, how Peter explains that we are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. That God has given us this access, opened up the throne of grace to believers so that in Christ we can come boldly. Also, we spoke last time of security in the Lord. As believers, we will never be disappointed in Jesus. He will never fail us. He will never disappoint us. We are totally secure in him for time and for eternity. And we saw too that we have the privilege of loving the Lord. You know, Christ is precious to those who believe. We see his infinite value and his glory and his loveliness. Ephesians 6, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. And that cornerstone that the world rejects that the world despises, we love. He's precious to us. And only believers truly value the Lord Jesus. Only to us is he beloved and treasured and priceless. For those who don't believe, they have no love for him. But they will face the consequences of that. And we saw it in we last time that he will be to them a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and their rejection of him will see them crushed by the one that they reject. But then in verse nine, we then are brought on to some further privileges that I want you to see, and the main one tonight is this: "We are chosen of the Lord. If you're a believer tonight, you are chosen of the Lord." He says that we are a chosen generation. And he makes this great contrast between the condemnation and the ruin of those who have disobeyed Christ, who did not love Christ and those Peter speaks of here. And that key word, but, he sets against those who are set to destruction, those who have rejected the chief cornerstone, those who didn't see him as precious. And then he says, but you, believer, on the other hand, you are a chosen generation. You're a chosen people, a chosen race. Now, the phrase needs to be understood in that it says you are a people who have been chosen, And set apart by a specific source, namely the Lord. So we are a chosen people, elect, and it is all of God. It is all of the Lord. Now, we know, don't we, all the way through this passage, Peter has been reaching back and using these Old Testament texts and then applying them in terms of the new covenant in Christ. And so that's true here as well when he speaks of a chosen generation and a chosen race. And what he does is he goes back to Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8. Let me read those verses to you. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you are more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, obviously there it is speaking of Israel. And here Israel is shown to be chosen of God. And just as Israel of old had been chosen by God for that special purpose within his plan, so Peter sees the church of Jesus Christ, the redeemed community of God, as chosen and set apart for his glory. It's the same concept in Isaiah 43, where it says, This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. So this people, God says, that I have, form that I've chosen, that I have set apart. And again, in that context, he's speaking of Israel, but Peter sees the new covenant people in those terms, that God has chosen them and called them out, set them apart. They are elect according to the plan and purpose of God. Now remember, Peter is writing to those that the world despises, that the world has rejected And that's how he began the letter. You know, he began in chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, those who have been scattered, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And he's saying there, you know, you're rejected by the world, but you are chosen of God, and you are precious to him. And uh, we've looked at this before, this whole matter of sovereign election, and it's such an important truth that runs throughout the Scriptures, and I would encourage you to really grapple with it. It's essential that we understand that if we are believers, it is because of God's divine decree that he chose us before the foundation of the world, and that is the most staggering privilege. And that truth is repeated again and again. You know, we'll sing later, chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee. It's all of grace, nothing of us, all of our gracious God. You know, let me give you some examples of where we see this truth so clearly. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Acts thirteen forty eight. when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord and as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. Romans 9, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Or Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You know, we could keep going all the way through the New Testament, even into the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, Revelation seventeen eight, It speaks of what will happen to those whose name is not written in the book of life. Because it says that the names of those who are written in the book of life were written from before the foundation of the world. Revelation 17:14. it speaks of how the Lamb will overcome, speaking of Antichrist and the enemies. The Lamb will overcome, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and here it is, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And so, this is the testimony of Scripture, that true believers are chosen from before the foundation of the world by God. They are a gift to His Son. Now, friends, consider that tonight. If you're a believer, here you are. If that's your condition, you are a believer because God set you aside for Himself from before the foundation of the world. You know, that is incredible. And Peter says that the nature of that election is not our choosing of God. It is not God choosing us because he saw something in us that has compelled him to save us. It is God moving and saving purely of his own mercy and grace. God saving people across time, across the world. God has set his love upon you and called you out and given you as a love gift to his son before time began. It is utterly staggering and why has he done it? Of his sovereign will and good pleasure. Amazing grace. Not what you deserve. Not what I deserve. And you know, the humble belief in this precious truth of election and sovereign grace really does draw out true worship and adoration. God is God and we are not. He is the Most High. He rules amidst the armies of heaven. None can stay his hand. None can say unto him, What are you doing? He is the Almighty who works all things after the counsel of his own will. He fulfills all his purposes and promises. And that is true in the salvation of sinners. And we believe these things, as a church we believe these things, because scripture says them. And we stand upon the word of God. Now, there are those who try to interpret this truth and use that word that we mentioned there from 1 Peter chapter 1 of foreknowledge, to explain election in a very different way. And this is what they say. They say that God is in his omniscience, his all-knowing, looked ahead and knew what people would do, and in some supernatural way looked through history before it happened, and he chose those who themselves respond to the gospel. And so by his divine observation, he foresaw who would believe and then affirm them as elect. And that, for many, you see, is far more acceptable because it sounds appealing because then man is responsible for belief. But that's not what the scriptures teach. God doesn't choose upon him seeing some merit in us. In fact, you know, the Bible says it's not the wise, it's not the mighty, and it's not the noble, and I'm very thankful for that. It's based in his own character, his sovereign purpose and predetermined plan and relationship. If you look back at 1 Peter 1 verse 20, it says, He indeed was foreordained, foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now there it's speaking of the Lord Jesus. Now it cannot mean that God chose Christ to be the Savior based on seeing what Jesus would do in the future. That is not the case. And just as we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, according to God's own pleasure, so the work of Christ was predetermined in the councils of eternity. The Son himself in full agreement with the Father. And that's something that Peter emphasizes even in 1 Peter 2 and verse 6. Look at what he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious. And so the Lord Jesus was chosen by the Father to fulfill that specific saving purpose. And in the same way, we have been chosen and appointed to salvation if we are believers by God's sovereign choice and grace. Friends, we need to be so clear about this. You know, if you believe that God has looked ahead and now is waiting for us to act, it makes man sovereign, not God. It gives man the credit for his own response and faith, not God. It assumes that man himself can seek God as he chooses and when he pleases. And so salvation becomes a a human work. It becomes a, a, a means by which we can exercise our own abilities. And it demeans the Lord. It steals his glory. And such things go against the clear teaching of the scriptures. And so the Bible makes it clear that God is sovereign, not man. That man, you know, doesn't take the credit for believing that man cannot and does not seek God. That salvation isn't a a human work, that God is never a victim or standing on the sidelines waiting to see what man will do. He is sovereign and we are chosen. That's the truth of Scripture and it should thrill our hearts. You know, it should certainly humble us And it should kill all pride. And that's a blessing because God gives grace to the humble. Also, it gives all the glory to him. You know, repentance and faith are his gifts to sinners like us. The ability to respond, the power to obey is from him. And so election is the most God-exalting truth and it highlights his commitment to save a people. And friends, it should produce joy in our hearts. You know, our only hope is the grace and goodness of God taking hold of us and drawing us to himself. God in his mercy and grace taking hold of me, setting his love upon me before the foundation of the world. It's a stunning thing. Psalm 65, blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your court. And it blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We're a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and so it goes on. Incredible privileges. And it should stir in us that desire to live for the glory of God and pursue holiness. You know that God should do this for us. Surely we should desire to do all for him. And it gives us that security because salvation is God's work from beginning to end. We can know that we are secure in his hand. He that has begun a good work in us will continue it until completion, until the day of Jesus Christ. You know, that wonderful hymn says, Your name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. More happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. That gives us great hope. It's all of him, secure in him. And we know, don't we, that there are many who will then turn around and say, oh, well, that kills a a passion for reaching out with the gospel. It kills a passion to pray for sinners to be saved. Well, that's just not true. Only God knows the heart. What are we called to do? To preach the gospel. And to plead with all to turn and be saved. And what God has done to save us and call us to himself is not to tell us ahead of time, you know, if we're elect or not. God never reveals this, except through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And so Christ is central to our election. And instead of telling us if we're elect, what God did was send his son and say, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. And if you're here tonight and you're not saved, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Turn from your sin. Look to the Savior who died on the cross for sinners and who is able to save all who call upon his name. He never casts out any who come to him by faith. And maybe you say, well, how do I know if I'm called? Well, you trust the Lord Jesus. Maybe you think, well, there's no hope for me. But the freedom of God in calling sinners to himself is to give hope, not take hope. It means that none is too bad. It means that none is too hard for the Lord, that none is too far gone. God is free. God is rich upon all that call upon his name. And friend, know this. If you can call upon his name, If you have that desire, as we said so many times before, if you can call on the name of the Lord, if you desire him, desire to be saved, it is of him. If you can call, you are called. And so Peter says, you're a chosen people, chosen before the foundation of the world and rejected by the world you may be, but you are precious to God and chosen all of grace. And then lastly this evening, the second privilege to look at, were also brought as believers to reign with the Lord. Look at what it says next, a royal priesthood. Now, we looked at what it means as a believer to be a priest in that New Covenant sense in recent weeks. We looked at the preciousness of access. But Peter emphasizes a different element here in that he says that we have been made a royal priesthood. To be priests is one thing, but to be given royal status really is actually mind-blowing. It's absolutely incredible, but it's what the Scriptures say. And again, Peter uses that imagery from the Old Testament, Exodus 19, verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so using that, he applies it in regard to the new covenant, the church, they are appointed as a royal priesthood. But you say, well, what does it mean? Well... It means a priesthood belonging to and in the service of the king. And so that would be, in one sense, a royal priesthood because we serve royalty. So that's one element of it. But, dear friends, it's so much more than that. You see, this concept of a royal priesthood is not only of one that belonged to and served the king, but also one that is given responsibility and is appointed to rule. Appointed not just to serve the king, but to reign with the king. Now, in some respects, it's almost too much to even speak of, but it is a privilege that the scriptures declare. It is staggering grace. The word used for royal there encompasses the broader sense of royal, whether it be a royal dwelling or sovereignty or a crown or monarchy, just royalty in general. And so we are being built as believers into a spiritual house, and it's a royal house. Not in the sense of a building, but in terms of a a royal dominion. A family of royalty. You know, in human terms of monarchy, we have the house of Windsor, don't we? It speaks of the the family of rulers. And that's the way that Peter is speaking here of those who are in Christ. We have been made part of the royal household. The royal household of priests. You know, we see this in Revelation 1.6 as well. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Or Revelation 5. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Speaking of Jesus. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then of those who have been redeemed, what does it say? and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Revelation 20. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him. It's a staggering thing. There's nothing that compares to that. It stands alone. There is only one who can establish such a household. And he must be the true priest. And he must be the true king. And who is that? It's the Lord Jesus. The true king, the ultimate priest. And believer, because you are one with him, because you are united with him, we are given in him the nature of his priesthood. You know, we haven't got time to go into it all now, but we see that particularly in Hebrews 7, where it speaks of this. It says, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. So in other words, it is a royal line, Judah. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so in the Old Testament, Melchizedek is a model of royal priesthood. But this is a type, it is a a foreshadow of the true royal priest, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus did not inherit his priesthood through the priestly line. He came through the royal line. And so in Christ, we are granted that same privilege And in the glory to come, we will reign with him. Just think of that. We will reign with him. It's just so far beyond our comprehension. But it should impact us now. Do you know, Paul gives us a glimpse of what this will look like in 1 Corinthians 6. This is what he says. He says, dare any of you, having a matter against another, speaking of believers, dare any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. And then he says this, do you not know that the saints, believers, will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? That's incredible. And he, he says, you know, why would you as believers take your disputes with each other before the world in a a worldly court because believers are going to judge the world and reign with Christ? And he says, in the light of that, why do you run to the world to settle these matters? You shall handle it between yourselves. Believer, you are a royal priest and your future is to forever be in the glory to come, in the presence of God, reigning with the Savior, with blessed privileges and responsibilities linked to that. There is none between us and the Lord. We have access to him. There is none over us but the Lord himself. Who can even begin to fathom such marvels? But the privilege is yours this night if you're a believer. And it's been given to you by sovereign grace. God has set you apart for such things. Chosen of him and indeed brought to reign with Christ. You know, when you think of all of these things, being united to Jesus, having access to God, being secure in the Lord, knowing the love of God and loving Christ, seeing him as precious, being chosen of the Lord, knowing that one day will reign with him, all of these privileges are given to you, believers, does it not make you thankful? Does it not make you grateful for what God has done? Do we not ask why, O oh Lord, such love to me that this should be given to you, secured through the glorious person and saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ? These things are staggering and glorious. And never forget, dear beloved, what it cost the most precious one, the Savior, the Lord Jesus. To redeem us and to bring these things to us. Willing as he was to go to that cruel cross, the perfect lamb, to hang and bleed and die, to atone for the sin of his people, to stand in their place, to pay the price, to endure the punishment that we deserve, to take the wrath in full so that we could be forgiven. And not just forgiven, but reconciled and adopted and brought into the family, into the household, and more than that, to be blessed with every spiritual blessing, to be blessed immeasurably in Christ. He did that for you, and he did it for me. And that's why Murat McShane had it so right when he said, when this passing world is done, when a sunk yon radiant sun, When I stand with Christ on high, looking all life's history, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then how much I owe. When I stand before thy throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, and love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then how much I owe. May we be a thankful people this night, and may we rejoice in our Saviour. Amen.